happy Labor Day weekend to all of you. Um, last, this morning we're between sermon series. So last week we finished up our series called Summer Shorts, which I've been enjoying all summer long, where we're studying a different short book of the Bible each week, right? And next week we're going to actually be launching a four-week kind of mini sermon series on Bethany's strategic vision which I think will be good for all of us to sort of get on the same page about what our church is like gearing up to do in this next year is kind of what that four-week series will be about. But today, it's Labor Day weekend, and this is when many of us are starting to gear up for a new season, right? Uh, It's crazy because I couldn't imagine this three months ago, but I bet I'm not alone in that I'm actually dreaming of colder weather, right? and sweaters. And for me, it's like wanting something hot, to, the, the feeling of wanting something hot. So like wanting hot soup or wanting hot tea. Our tea consumption, I was just checking in with our little helpers out there. Uh, they're little because they're actually kids. And um, who helped set up our table, our tea table. And they were like, yeah, the tea supply is still great. I was like, yeah, no one drinks tea in, when it's 90 degrees outside. So I'm ready to want tea. But it's also, uh, this is a time when the routines of life start picking back up again, right? Even for those of us who aren't connected to school in any way, I think all of us start to, start to crave more rhythm to life again. And so because of this, we wanted to take some time at Northeast, but at some of the other locations as well, to talk about our work and about the thing we spend almost most of our waking hours each week doing or the things. For some of us, it's multiple things, for me included. Uh, And so we're going to look at the work we do every day together today. And uh, we're going to look at how these places and how this work intersects with our faith in Jesus. And it's a much bigger topic than one sermon can do justice to, and I realize that. But we wanted to pause and just give this part of our lives that gets so much of our attention, some attention here, where we come to learn about who God is, and who he's created us to be. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We'll pray uh, as we begin our time, and we'll also pray for our lead pastor, Jack, who is away with his family this week at a family camp, along with some other, a few other families from here in Oregon, helping sort of lead that time. So let's pray for them, let's pray for our study, and we'll begin. God, we give you thanks again for this space we have to worship you in. And God, as we come before your word this morning, we ask that you would open our minds and open our hearts to understand it, and not only to understand it, uh, to know you better, God, but to also know what you're calling us to do in our daily lives, in our work. And Lord, we lift up Jack and his family to you. We thank you for the time that they're getting to spend as a whole family now together, away. We ask that this would richly bless them as they come back Uh, tomorrow to gear up for school and work, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So to start us off on this work and faith sermon today, I thought I would reminisce a little with you all uh, about my work when I was right out of college. Many of you know I graduated college with an accounting degree and still do accounting today on the side with my pastor job. And when I graduated, I got a job in Portland. I was working for a big accounting firm there. And most of the Portland office clients are local, so I assumed I wouldn't get to travel much. And get to was the word. I loved, I was very excited about this idea of travel for work. But I didn't expect I would get to, so I was surprised 
when I learned shortly after starting that I was going to be assigned to a client down in Northern California. And so one Sunday night, I hopped、um, on a little Horizon Airlines plane down to Eureka, California, and then jumped into a rental car with my coworkers, new coworkers, and we drove south another 45 minutes to Scotia, California. Who's heard of Scotia, California? Yeah. Okay, one person. <laughs> Nothing could have prepared 21-year-old me from the suburbs for Scotia, California.、Um, it's a company-owned lumber town. In obviously kind of the Humboldt County area, and that means it owned everything in the town, every house, the general store, the school, all of it. It owns the whole town, and it was like stepping back in time about a century. And not only was it an adjustment for me, I found out I was going to be spending about three months of my year each year in Scotia, California. So I learned the hard lesson that week that traveling for work isn't always as glamorous as it sounded to me when I was in college.、Uh, in fact, it was nowhere near glamorous. I was staying in a Holiday Inn for three months of my year now. But I learned a lot about this little company、uh, called the Pacific Lumber Company, or Palco. It was owned by the same family for 120 years, who started it in 1865. And the Murphy family, when they started this company, decided they wanted it to be sustainable. And so they did not clear-cut forests. They were very careful about how they cut down trees. And that was a bold move in the 1800s, not a trendy move at that point. But by the time this company was 100 years old, it had no debt. It owned vast quantities of land. And it sustained a huge workforce, over a thousand employees, which is a lot for a tiny little lumber company town. It was a hugely successful company, and is actually really pretty well liked. And then, in 1985, kind of everything changed, and a big publicly traded company out of Texas came in and actually staged a hostile takeover of this company, of Palco. And suddenly, the company's strategy changed. And you've probably heard this type of story before, right? Where no clear cutting was allowed before, now that was encouraged. Now we said we're going to increase production, we're going to increase the bottom line, and the sustainable model、uh, was was chucked, and the new owner just sort of took over and changed everything. And so suddenly, of course, environmental groups are staging huge protests, and the company starts losing money. They started having to borrow heavily. And I show up 20 years later, in 2005.、Uh, I'm there to audit the company because they now are owned by a public company. I needed to do an audit. For those who don't speak that language, it's not that important. But that's what I was doing. And so、uh, I show up, and they're barely making payments on massive loans. The company is really struggling. And two years later, January 2007, I remember it pretty vividly. I'm in Scotia. I'm working away on the just getting started on the previous year's audit. When all of us, including the employees that I was working with in the accounting department, find out that the company has filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and employees are shocked and dejected, and the audit team I'm working with is like, "What does this mean for us?" <laughs>、um, it was crazy. The company had been gutted. The legacy of this family, the Murphy family, that had owned this company for over a hundred years, basically gone, forgotten, in less than a generation. And my young brain 
could not envision any kind of redemption for this at this point, right? I didn't have any capacity to see beyond what was right in front of me. And so it seemed like the best thing to do was to pack up and go home and get out of there. And it's exactly what we did as an audit team. And I share this because I think many of us, no matter what our work is, have encountered those situations that seem dire. Maybe not that dire, maybe not dry bones dire, but that seem like there is no redemption here. What could God possibly be doing here in this scenario? And this is not God's design for us. God calls Ezekiel, as we'll see I think this morning, to step into a lifeless situation and to prophesy to things that appear utterly dead. No hope for them. And then God uses Ezekiel's obedience and he ushers his life breath into this darkest of places. And this morning when I, we look at faith and our work, I want us to think about three pieces of Ezekiel's story as they might relate to us. First, I think we'll, we'll take a hard look at what our reality in our work is. And second, what our calling is at work. And then third, what the future could look like, a little bit of a vision. So first, what is our reality? What is your reality? And to help us, let's turn back, let's look at what Ezekiel's reality was. Because basically the people of Israel are devastated. Um, they're in exile. The city of Jerusalem has just fallen. The temple has been destroyed. And I think they just do not see a way forward. This is their worst nightmare playing out in front of them. And along comes Ezekiel, who in chapters, the previous three chapters of this book, before this story, has spent a ton of time telling Israel at God's command that they're going to be restored. He's saying, God's going to defeat your enemies. The evil in the nations that destroyed our city is going to be eradicated, right? Israel is going to be restored, he's saying. And Israel is not listening. The people are scoffing, or at worst, just sort of ignoring him. They can't see it. I think all they can see is the desolation, the terrible suffering that they're experiencing. And I think Ezekiel, although he's hearing this directly from God, is also having a tough time believing it. And we'll see why in a second, why I think that he's having a tough time. I think he's having a tough time, though, seeing that there's a, there could be any different reality than what they're in. And he's not even sure that he believes the words he's repeating. And so I think God knows this. He knows the people just can't see beyond their current reality. And so... And he needs his leader, Ezekiel, at least, to believe him. And so this is where we come into chapter 37. And um, we see God leads Israel into a, deep into a vision. Now, it's so vivid, there are scholars, most scholars agree it was just a vision, but it is very vivid. So he may not be quite sure, am I dreaming or is this real, right? <clears throat> And in this vision, Ezekiel finds himself in a valley, and everywhere he looks, right, he is surrounded by human bones. And not just by any human bones, but by bones that have been dead for hundreds of years, perhaps. He describes them as very dry. So I'm imagining, like, you accidentally brush one with your foot, and it disintegrates, like dry bones. And I know many of us have heard this story before, right? 
it's, it's the most popular story in the book of Ezekiel. Most of us couldn't tell you about the other 40 chapters in Ezekiel, but this one, 40 plus. So anyways, I know you've probably heard it before if you've been around church for a while, but I invite you to connect it to your work. That is something I had never done. And actually it was another pastor on our teaching team who had chosen this passage for today. And I was like, what, Ezekiel 37? I'm not quite sure how that fits. The more I thought about it, the more I loved it. So I encourage you to think about how it relates to your work this morning as a way to make it fresh for us. So anyways, Ezekiel's in the middle of this dry valley full of death. And God asks him a powerful and very simple question. Son of man, he says, can these bones live? Simple, to the point, yes or no question. And Ezekiel's response is probably best described as diplomatic because he doesn't say, with you, Lord, anything is possible. He doesn't say, you can raise water from rocks and you can raise bones to life. He says, uh, you're the only one who could know that, Lord. Ezekiel is revealing, I think, that his imagination isn't quite strong enough to picture these dead, dead bones around him actually walking and living. He's not able to see beyond the reality he's looking at right now. And so his response, you're the only one who can know that, Lord, it's almost a defeated response. You can hear him sort of a pain in that response. I can, at least. And so let's pause here. How many of us have faced that ever in our lives, right? Experienced that valley of dry bones, maybe in our work. Maybe you've looked at your coworkers and all you've seen is greed or competition. Or you've looked at your job and seen it as worthless. This is busy work. There is no value in what I'm doing. Or you've seen a company you built from the ground up fail file for bankruptcy. Or maybe as you're raising your kids, you're looking at the society around you and going, is anything I'm doing going to even make a positive difference when this is what they're growing up inside of? There are valleys like Ezekiel's all around most of us, and I think we have a tendency sometimes to give in to them, to say, there's nothing I can do. I should quit my job or I should leave this toxic environment, or I should go back to my career. This caring for my kids, it's too hard. Or even more likely, we settle in and just go through hating our work, complaining about it every chance we get, right? CNN Money came out with an article, I think this week, it said uh, more than half of U.S. adults identify as being unhappy at their work. More than half. So if you put us in this room, that's like this half. That's a lot of us. And that's not what God designed us for. God designed us to work. It's part of our human DNA. I think we were meant for the act of working. And working is a very broad term. It doesn't just mean going to a job, right? It could be lots and lots of things including the things that we don't necessarily qualify as work. But in Genesis 2, God places Adam in the garden, and he tells him to work it and take care of it. He gives Adam a job before there's any other humans around. Before, before any sin enters the world, Adam has a job to do, a work to do. And we're designed to have that too, to have something to do, something to care for. 
We're invited to be co-creators and co-nurturers with God because it's part of our design as people made in God's image. So when we work purely as a means to an end, as a means to a paycheck, right? Or when we work in order to be able to retire one day and not work anymore. Or when we work a job we hate. This is not God's design. The solution is not simply to find another job. Hear me, there's no perfect workplace. There's no perfect job. There's no perfect fit for you. In fact, you might find one for a moment. You might find, oh, this is the perfect job. I'm working for the perfect manager. Or I am the perfect manager. But then that manager gets fired. Or the company files for bankruptcy. Our work will always, in this side of Christ's return, it will always have places of exile. It will always have these valleys of dry bones that we'll stumble into. And we'll find ethical dilemmas. And we'll face unemployment when all we want is work to do. And we'll find ourselves sorely missing adult interaction when we have chosen to stay home and care for kids all day, every day. And it will feel at times like a valley of dry bones. And God doesn't want us to stay there. Nor does he want us to simply run away. And so let's look at how he invites Ezekiel to respond. If you're following an outline, this is the second point on your outline. Because God has understood that Ezekiel just quite can't picture it. That those dry bones might live one day, but I can't picture it, God. And so what does he tell Ezekiel to do? He tells Ezekiel to speak to the bones. To say to those bones, hey bones, listen, God is talking to you. He says he's going to bring his spirit into you and that you're going to come to life. You're going to get some tendons and muscle and skin, and then you're going to come to life, and you're going to know that I am the Lord. And Ezekiel does it. But I believe, even as he's starting to speak, I, I have a hunch he still can't picture it. He's being faithful. He's speaking. And then, of course, as he starts to speak, what happens? It starts to come true right before his eyes. God is giving him an image of the power of speaking God's word to situations. And then God takes it a step further. Because certainly now Ezekiel has a bunch of bodies in front of him, and I imagine it's a little bit zombie-like, zombie scene-like, a little bit like dead bodies just standing there. And so God gives him another thing to say. And he says, prophesy now to the wind, to the breath, is the word. And so first he speaks to the bones, and now he's speaking to the wind. And God says, tell the wind, come wind from the four corners of the world and breathe into these dead bodies that they might live. And God's suggesting that Ezekiel speak the impossible in God's name and see what power comes. He wants him to see that when he prophesies to Israel, his words are not in vain, right? To see what power comes when he speaks God's word. And so what I see in this image is Ezekiel is standing in the gap of what God desires, in this case, life, and what the reality is, in this case, utter death. And Ezekiel's standing right here, and he's pointing to how God can work his purposes out. That is what prophesying is, and I think we're supposed to do it, honestly. 
We're called to be people who prophesy. And that word is a little squishy for me, or maybe a little bit uh, turns me off. Prophesying has some negative connotations for me, honestly, in our society today. And so if you need a different word to help you understand the same thing, to prophesy means to declare something, right? Specifically to declare the words of God to the world, to human beings, to bones, to wind. And I think as a general rule, we as Seattle Christians don't declare things very often, especially to each other. Not enough. I would love to see us be people who are out in our city declaring life and beauty over our city to one another, to our coworkers. We could declare God's word and God's hope to corporations, to coworkers, to each other. And I know this might sound crazy. Hear me, I'm not suggesting necessarily that you go to work on Tuesday and start saying, God says our company is going to start building safe houses for women and children. Or God says uh, our hospital is going to start lobbying for a totally different healthcare system. And we're going to lose money. It's going to be great. I don't know that that'll work. You could try it. But when God does give you a vision for what he wants to do, and I think this morning we can start asking him for one if we aren't already, then even if we can't fully even imagine how it could be possible yet, what if we started talking about it? Maybe start with your spouse or, or your favorite coworker. But what if you started pointing to the vision of what God wants in our work, in our communities? And it could be little things. I mean, I know some of us are not big leaders in corporations. Some of us are stay-at-home parents. What does it look like to start imagining what God wants. Start imagining ourselves out of that valley of dry bones. And I think imagination is actually a very important tool in this calling. And I think what we'll notice as we start to do this, as we start to try and see what God's vision could be and start speaking it, even if we're not quite sure it's possible yet, we'll see that the brokenness in our midst isn't all that there is that even the driest bones aren't beyond life. And so God, God brings this home for Ezekiel in case he hasn't quite made the connection yet in verses 12 through 14. He says, tell Israel, I'm going to open their graves. I'm going to bring them up from graves, up from death. Tell them I'm going to bring you back into the land of Israel. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. He's saying this is actually what's going to happen. You just can't see it yet. And we have the same spirit in us, the power to speak God's truth, to cast beautiful vision in the most broken places we inhabit. And I think as we embrace our calling to be prophets for that beautiful vision, we'll start to see it. Those who will say, look what's, we'll be those who say, look what's possible. And we'll start to believe it more deeply. So. One of the longest letters Paul writes is his first letter to the Corinthians. And almost at the very end of this long letter, Paul starts in on this long section about how even though we now have earthly bodies that we live in, someday we'll have resurrection bodies is what he calls them. He says, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, Paul can be dramatic, the dead will be raised, imperishable. 
and we will be changed. And when this happens, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? So then he says, very next sentence, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's an interesting conclusion to draw that our labor, that our work is not in vain. In the book of Revelation, we see a vision of Jesus sitting on a throne and saying as he sits on a throne, look, I am making all things new. That nothing we do, none of the work we do will be lost. All things will be redeemed. All things. That's amazing. And there's another saying that kind of helps us think about this. The saying, have you heard, there is nothing lost in God's economy? It's a little bit of a cheesy saying, but I actually love it. It means nothing we do, no matter how imperfect, will be lost in the end, is beyond redemption, right? So even in the darkest of professions, even in the worst work you can imagine, and it, there's, bat, there's some pretty tough work being done out there, God is at work, and God can use us. And that's not to say there's not a time to quit your job. I'm not saying that because I had to quit my job at Deloitte three years in because I just wasn't strong enough. I wasn't strong enough at that time to hold up under the corporate pressure. It was too attractive to me to just keep churning out charge hours, to keep advancing in the company until I, that was all I knew. That was the only reality I could see. You know what? I think if I went back now, I could do it. I think God has sort of matured me. It's weird when you get older. You feel like you get more wisdom. I feel like I could do it now, and I think God has maybe called me another direction, and I'm not sure that the big four accounting firm would let me be a pastor and an, and an auditor anymore. But uh, I still do accounting. I still feel called to this work. And I think God uses people in all kinds of careers, from house cleaners and firemen and teachers and nurses and accountants, and I could list Every profession, I think, God is using people in those. Stay-at-home parents, of course, and our work goes beyond that. We work when we garden, when we practice an instrument, when we, right, when we cook a meal, when we fix a broken sink. And God is saying, none of this work is lost in my, in my world. Every part of our work matters to God, and it's inherently part of who we are to participate in it. God works, we work. It's kind of how it works. And to reveal to the world we live in how God is working is part of our work. I think God wants us to be working, and he wants us to be working with him, not against him, right? And so we stand in the valleys of dead, dry bones at times, and we say there's life here. God is here, and God can move here. And we ask God for the imagination to be able to envision it. So we're going to conclude this morning, and I actually want to bring up a couple of people who have been thinking this idea about how their faith lives out at work. They didn't know I was going to use Ezekiel, so it's not necessarily directly connected to that passage. But I think this is kind of a cool concept to talk about, and it can be pretty difficult to live out 
in what we actually do every day. And so I wanted to bring up a few people who are working on this. They're in progress. They have not perfected it yet. None of us have, I don't think. If, if you have, and I didn't invite you up here, I apologize. But I wanted some living examples. So Carl and Jen, if you guys want to come forward. Um, I'm going to have you introduce yourselves and a little bit about your, what you do during your days right now and if you want a little bit about your work history as well. Sounds good? Sure. All right. I'll start with Jen. Hi, I'm Jen. And I've had kind of an all-over-the-board career. I graduated from a school in Los Angeles in, uh, called Loyola Marymount and um, got a degree in communication studies. Uh, shortly after graduating, I got a job at MGM Studios in HR. You guys know the lion at the beginning of movies. Um, that was where I worked. <laughs> um, and then shortly after that, I took an uh, internship at The Inn, which is a college ministry at University Presbyterian Church in the U District here in Seattle, which is what brought me here. Um, and then, uh, now that I'm a mom, I realized this next job might have been my most important, which was a full-time nanny uh, for two different families mm. in different seasons. And after being a nanny for a few years, I got a job as a program assistant at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in Global Health, and now am a senior program assistant in Global Health as well. Awesome. Thanks. Carl? Uh, good morning, I'm Carl. Uh, I went to the Naval Academy, got an engineering degree, and then spent seven years in the Navy, a couple years on a frigate, a couple years on an aircraft carrier, primarily in the engineering um, propulsion plant area, and then a couple years teaching Navy ROTC at University of Michigan, at which point I left the Navy, um, went to maybe even a bigger company, General Motors, and uh, as a manufacturing engineer, uh, worked in the production area, production and maintenance, uh, program management, project management, and then um, ultimately I was a director in manufacturing engineering working on new programs with the assembly plants, bringing them in. Uh, and then a year ago, uh, I switched careers drastically, retired, and my wife and I now are full-time daycare for our 22-month-old daughter, yeah. which is very different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I would imagine it, it is. Um, so my question, actually, I'll just leave you the mic, uh, to both of you, is how do you see your work as part of God's calling for your life? That's my first question. I have a couple more. Um, I mean, now it's probably a little bit clearer now. where there, there's the immediate and nothing else, and that's kind of difficult for me because I spent all my career working on things that were two, three, four, five, six years out, and now there is only the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, in dealing, dealing with our granddaughter. But I think in, in the corporate world, um, a lot of what um, myself and, and the group that I managed did was prepping the plants for products coming in. And that often dealt with um, really the safety, ergonomic uh, situations of, of bringing the product in. And can somebody do this job? And can they do it safely? And, and are mm -hmm. we setting up an environment where at the end of the day, they're going to go home the same way they came in, in the same condition? And then as I moved up, um, dealing, which I thought I would never want to deal with HR, so God bless you for being that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it ended up being more and more part of the job, dealing with, with the employees and, you know, my peers, working with them. And, um, you know, deciding that we needed to reward people, not just because they got the job done, but if they left a trail of death and destruction in their wake when they did it, 
that that was as significant as getting the job done. And so rewarding people and, and setting an environment where how you did your work and how you interacted with people was just as important and was rewarded just as greatly as, as the fact that you got a job done on time. Hmm. That's cool. And interesting how you can shape a, start to shape a culture. In, in, your, yeah. in your little, little yeah. sphere, yeah. Right. I think that I have uh, a knack for organization and planning. I kind of giggled uh, when Jenny sent us an email with the questions in advance because um, she said it's something like, you know, prepare as much as you want or you can just speak from the heart. And I'm like, um, hi. I have highlights in my paper right here. I'm going to prepare. Um, so I think that currently in my job I do a lot of detail-oriented work. I, you know, make sure all the T's are crossed and I's are dotted. Um, and I'm also a people manager, so uh, a lot of what I do is... Um, a lot of the time I spend at work is talking to the program assistants that I manage and talking to them about their career, what's going on in their lives, problem solving, whether that's work-wise or even personal. I mean, sometimes it just kind of bleeds into each other. Um, but I think a lot about the verse in Colossians that says, whatever you do, whatever you do, work at it with your whole being as if you're working for the Lord and not for man. Um, and I mm. think currently in my job, it looks like uh, encouraging people and showing them what their worth is and what their skill sets are, especially when it's talk we're talking about career development because, you know, I can see a job that might come open and say, you would be great for that. And they're like, really? I would? So it's kind of being a, a mirror to people mm -hmm. and saying, this is what you're worth and this is what you're great at. Um, and this is what you That's could consider awesome. doing. Yeah. Cool. Well, here, you can keep it. And then uh, do either of you have an example of experiencing from today a valley of dry bones, if you will, but... Just a challenge at work that was hard to see out of, and did you catch a vision for something different? Definitely. Um, so the foundation is an incredible place with an amazing mission of all lives having equal value and everyone deserves the chance at a healthy and productive life. That's kind of their tagline. Cool. Nice. So um, I think that people, the, the roles that the foundation recruits for are sometimes highly specialized and technical and unique. So it can take up to two years to find the right person because maybe there's like one or two on the whole earth that would qualify or whatever. Mm. Um, but with that comes uh, very smart people who maybe are taking pay cuts, maybe are taking title changes, who used to be CEOs and now they're, you know, quote unquote less or lower on the to totem pole. Um, so I think that it's tough sometimes to feel like even though the mission is so great that there's some, sometimes a sense of entitlement. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, specifically, I remember um, I sit in a cube and someone who I know owned a company and who was very successful in her career sat in a cube near me. And I could tell she was really struggling with just kind of her new quote-unquote identity and um, what that meant for her. And she was kind of gruff and kind of, um, I, was, I was a little nervous around her because I'm kind of like, hi, how are you? And she's like, um, so I was a little intimidated, but um, I had heard that uh, a few months after she started, her mother had unexpectedly passed away, mm. and my heart just broke because you know sometimes that the people who you know seem the toughest um, mm. might uh, not you know share as vulnerably or let people be there for them, and so I just came home and I talked to my husband and just felt like I needed to do something, but it's one of those awkward things where my work is definitely not, like, Christian. Um, it's, yeah, it's non-denominational, I suppose. Um, and uh, I didn't know where my boundaries were with mm -hmm. sharing that I wanted to be told, tell her that I was praying for her. 
But I just decided to write her a card, and um, I remember even writing in the card, like, sorry if this sounds weird, like, I know I don't really know you, but I just wanted you to know that you're noticed and you're loved, and I'm sorry that you're going through this really hard time. Um, and I got really nervous because she came back to work and uh, the card was off her desk, so I knew she saw it, but like she didn't say anything and like she didn't say hi to me when she walked by, and so I was like, oh, I really offended her, like dang it, but I still feel like I did the right thing. Um, and then a few days went by and I walked by her desk again and I noticed that she had tacked the card up to her cork mm. board and nothing else was on it, no photos, no nothing but the card that um, I had written her just out of a place of wanting to give her hope and wanting to show her that she was noticed and cared for. That's awesome. Yeah. Do you have a story? Uh, I have a story. Awesome. Um, and maybe a little, little bit different, kind of the intersection of work and, and home. Um, mm. It's interesting, the, the reading today, the uh, Valley of Dry Bones, um, being from Detroit, Hmm. Um, could be listed as a valley of dry bones. You know, you know, when someone says they're from Seattle, the next logical question is, what neighborhood? When someone says they're from Detroit, you ask them, what city do you live in? Because nobody lives in Detroit that hmm. you would know. Uh, and people don't go down there. Uh, I think in 30 years at General Motors, I know of two people who actually lived in the city. Everybody lives out. The tech center where I was was outside. The only time you go into Detroit is if you want to see the Tigers. Uh, or the Red Wings play, you don't go to see the Lions because they're not worth watching, you just watch them on TV, they're no good. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's, that's kind of the feeling, and everyone has, oh, well, there's just, you know, gangs everywhere and it's not safe and you wouldn't go mm -hmm. down there. Well, through a kind of a weird set of circumstances, which are too long to go, get into, a uh, couple that we knew from church got this vision of moving downtown to Detroit. And we had been going, actually going in the city more and more, well, my wife and I doing things down there, and we ended up partnering with them, buying a house down there, a 110-year-old uh, house that needed to be refurb renovated. I mean, huge job. Um, the guy ended up losing his job and moving out of the area, and so we ended up with this house. Hmm. We're like, okay. <laughs> um, so we're gradually renovating this thing. You know, people at work, oh, what'd you do this weekend? Oh, I went up north to my cabin on the lake. Oh, we spent the weekend down in Detroit working on our house. They're like, what? <laughs> It's like you out of your mind, you're spending your weekends in Detroit. Um, you know, and then as we got more and more engaged in the community there and finding out uh, organizations, one, Greening of Detroit, which put in um, planted trees in, in neighborhoods. Uh, when it came time one year for our work to, you know, we're coming up with, hey, I want to do a service project this year. And I was in a position to kind of, you know, kind of steer the group. It was like, hey, I know this group that, that plants trees in Detroit. Let's go down there, we'll plant trees, and then we can have a, a picnic in, in our house in Detroit afterwards. You know, and you can see the people like, you know, do I need to pack heat when I go down there? And, well, you know, what's the situation? And all that. I mean, because people just, just diss Detroit all the time. And so now all of a sudden you've got 25, 30 people from General Motors going into this neighborhood and meeting um, kind of the, the block captain, I don't know what he was officially, and having him talk about how he'd invited this group in and how the, the um, the neighborhood there had bought one of the abandoned houses and were turning it into a kind of an informal rec center there for the, for the neighborhood. Hmm. And now we're standing in people's front yards, digging holes, wrestling trees into the ground. You know, people on the porch, oh, I think you need to lean it a little bit more. <laughs> you know, it's not quite straight, you know, and playing manager off on the side and, and, and goofing hmm. with us. 
and then going out to our house and people sitting in the backyard, in, in somebody's backyard in the city of Detroit, uh, you know, and Karen and I inviting them, hey, take a walk around the block, see the neighborhood. Um, and I think it really had a chance for this group of 25, 30 people to walk away with a, a humanized view of a city that they were, it was very easy to sit off in the suburbs um, and just kind of kind of pan it and say, eh, you know, just write it off, forget it. We don't need anything there. So I think I ended up in kind of a unique situation um, to be able to do that and, and use work to kind of steer people yeah. into something that they probably wouldn't have done otherwise. That's awesome. Keep it for one more quick question. Thank you, guys. Uh, but what is one hope you have for this coming year, as we sort of are starting a new year, uh, for the work that you're called to for this coming year? What's one hope you have? Um, yeah, you and I have talked about this I, uh, a little bit. The, the immediate with the granddaughter is great, um, but I guess uh, you know, I retired relatively young, and, and I, my hope would be that somewhere I could find an opportunity to, to continue to give back and volunteer role, either uh, mentoring, tutoring, yeah. somehow get connected and, and help the next generation up. Very cool. For you, Jen. Yeah, uh, in October, I actually start a new role in HR, back to my HR roots. Um, someone's got to do it. <laughs> uh, and I have no idea what it's going to be like. Right now I have a two-year-old and um, a husband, and I have a community, and I have all this um, great work-life balance, and I just... Um, I would just ask for actually prayer for uh, as looking at my life now and recalibrating what is it going to look like in a new job mm. and ramping up. And um, I've been doing this role I'm in now for five years, and I know it. And so I'm going to be out of my element. Yeah. So um, you can just pray for all of that. For sure. Thank you guys so much. Would you guys give these guys a hand for their preparation? I will let you go sit. Thank you so much. So I actually want to, we'll close in prayer, and uh, I'll invite the worship team back up. But I want to pray specifically for Jen and Carl, and for those who are sort of heading into a new season. I know our kids are heading back to school this week, if they haven't already. And I know uh, many of us maybe are stepping into new roles, or just stepping back to work after some summer away. And another long year is sort of laying ahead. So I want to pray for us as we enter this new season. Join me. God, we give you this coming fall, this coming year. God, we thank you for the teachers who are going back to school even now to prepare classrooms and to prepare spaces for kids to learn. God, would you give them visions of hope and your beauty for those kids and for those classes? God, we pray for the kids whose nerves maybe are, are starting to bubble up as they think about going back to school. Even as they're excited, Lord, we pray that you would help them, God, to see this work that they're doing now uh, as important, as so crucial to what you have for them down the road. And would you help them, God, to learn well this year, to be shaped, God, by teachers and others in our community, to be people who follow hard after you. And God, for those of us who are going to other jobs, who are heading into another year of perhaps schooling our kids at home or caring for our kids at home, for those of us who are going back to work in other ways on Tuesday, God, we ask that you would 
Help us, God, to be people who stand in the gap of broken reality that we live in and your vision for a beautiful, perfect world. And God, would we point people to that vision in tiny ways and in big ways. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.